that, let's now open the Word of God that He may speak to us. Our scripture reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 12. Second Kings 12, and we'll read that entire chapter. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash, also known as Joash, began to reign, and he reigned forty years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, and the people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priest take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. But by the twenty-third year of King Jehoash, the priest had made no repairs on the house. Therefore King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the house and that they should not repair the house. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priests who guarded the threshold put in it all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had, over, who had, over, who, excuse me, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stonecutters, as well as to buy timber and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord, and for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But they were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. And they did not ask for an accounting from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out to the workmen, for they dealt honestly. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Silla. It was Josachar the son of Shimeath and Jehozabad the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died. 
And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah his son reigned in his place. So far the reading of the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together. The text to which we want to give our attention is the same text that we read, 2 Kings chapter 12. And this is your opportunity to wonder where in the world the sermon is going to go with a chapter like that. Well, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I do admit uh, this was a tough one for me to work on. Uh, sometimes you, you read certain chapters of the Bible and you just throw up your hands and say, what am I supposed to do with that? Uh, what are we supposed to learn from that? Now, that's not to say there's not interesting details in the text. There, there definitely are. When I first read the text, perhaps this was your reaction as well, my mind immediately went to similar sorts of situations as, the, as we see there with the repairs of the temple. Uh, where, wherever there's a lack of financial accountability, you have these sorts of situations, whether it's government programs, whether it's things like disaster relief, sometimes even on our mission fields, uh, you see this sort of thing, that, that black hole where the money just it goes in and nothing ever comes out. Uh, so, uh, verse 6, it says, By the 23rd year of King Joash, the priest had made no repairs on the house. So, uh, presume, if we're assuming that this started on his first year, that's 23 years of money being devoted to the repair of the temple, being given by all these individual donors to the repair of the temple. And 23 years later, nothing has happened, and there's no accountability. No one knows where the money went. It, it just went, just went away. Uh, uh, so there's the, the hard conversation that King Joash has to have with the priests uh, in verse 7. It's interesting. If you just stop, you read it, you think about the personal dynamics at play here. Uh, in verse 7 it says, King, King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest. Uh, don't forget that's uh, his adopted dad. Uh, and, and the other priests and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. Now, how do the priests respond to that sort of touchy, direct accusation? You guys have had 20 years to build, to repair the house, and nothing's going on. You should probably stop taking donations. Uh, and the priests clearly take it personally. Uh, verse 8, the priests agreed, we won't take any more money from the people, and we're done repairing the house. So it's not, you're right, we should start collecting the money and actually use it for repairing the house. It's if you don't like the way we're not doing it, you do it. Uh, sort of a personal reaction you can see as, as you're reading between the lines. Uh, you can probably all think of, of similar situations. Uh, wherever the financial accountability is poor, you get these sorts of things. Uh, government budgets that just seem always to run far short of, of what they were, or excuse me, where the money seems to run far short, or the budget goes far uh, over what was predicted. Or employees that, that uh, are paid to do a job and just it never gets done. And you wonder, where did the time go? What were they doing uh, all, the, all this time? Uh, as the accountants in our midst will, will know well, this is what happens uh, when there's no accountability. Uh, money, salaries, budgets, these are touchy subjects, but they need accountability. Uh, so, if you want to do something with this chapter, that's one direction you could go. Uh, if there's ever a text in the Bible that speaks of the need for accountants and accountability and treasurers, this is that chapter. 
But then we have to ask, is that all that there is to this chapter? Is that all it's there for? Uh, Well, I don't believe so. For one thing, that would be a very unusual departure from the larger themes of 1st and 2nd Kings, which is primarily on the spiritual health of God's people, uh, and especially the spiritual leadership of the kings. Uh, That's what the focus has been consistently up till now. It would be uh, striking if suddenly we have a chapter that's just about uh, financial accountability. Uh, Another reason why I don't believe that's the primary intent of this chapter uh, is because this book was written to us, to God's people, to instruct our hearts to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. As we look at every king, we're supposed to be asking, uh, what does this teach us about the Messiah uh, in terms of what we should expect, things that are good, and also the sort of king we should not be looking for. That's what Kings was written for. Uh, and, and so we want to be paying attention to that. And at the end of the day, uh, you have a king here, King Jehoash, who, who does a good job. Of, of accountability for the repairs of the temple, but what does he do at the very end of the chapter? He strips the gold from the temple, takes all the donations, and gives them away to the king of Syria, and then himself is assassinated. Well, there's a story behind that. Uh, and, and I would say that's probably not the sort of king you should be looking for to be the Messiah, to lead God's people uh, into, into obedience and into God's kingdom. Uh, and, and as I've had to do then the digging in this chapter, looking at what else is going on here, I've come to realize there are actually very, very significant lessons for us to learn here, uh, particularly as a Canadian Reformed church. Uh, And and so I pray that our minds and hearts will be open and our hearts ready to be taught by a chapter like this. I want to start then by observing with you that uh, that although verse 2 seems to introduce King Joash fairly positively, uh, clearly not everything was right in his reign. Uh, and, And therefore we should recognize if not everything's right in your life, in your reign, then not everything's right in your heart either. That's, that's always the way it works. A life that is not well lived doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from a heart that, that's not right before the Lord. We do get a few clues about that in this chapter. So first there's the introduction in verses 1 and 2. It says, Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all his days. Uh, and, and the ESV says, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Uh, so you remember Jehoiada the priest. That was uh, the focus of last uh, of the sermon two weeks ago, uh, when him and his wife uh, rescued the baby boy Joash from the hands of his grandmother, who was trying to have the royal line uh, eliminated. Now, there's an, a translation issue here with verse 2, and I want to really draw your attention to this, because everything hinges on this. Uh, the translations will say different things. The word because, uh, where it says, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him, can also simply mean all the years that Jehoiada the priest instructed him. You hear the difference there. Uh, One says it was all his life because of Jehoiada. The other says it was all his days while Jehoiada uh, lived. Uh, In this case, 
I do believe that is the better translation for this verse. And the reason I can say that confidently is because that's clearly what is said in the, in the version of jo- Joash's reign in Chronicles. So 2 Chronicles 24 tells the story from a different perspective. That same king, King Jehoash. And there it says, I'll read the, the introduction there. It says, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. You hear that? All the days Jehoiada lived, he did what was right. It doesn't say what he did or how he lived afterwards. Uh, The point is clear. Once daddy was gone, Joash was not quite the same man he was while his dad was around. Uh, So in, in... in 2 Chronicles 24, the problems uh, that are, are very subtly, very um, hard to see on the surface of this text here in Kings, they are very obvious in Chronicles. On top of that, there's a lot left out uh, that's mentioned explicitly in Chronicles that doesn't get mentioned here in Kings. Uh, for example, in 2 Chronicles, it says this. Uh, this is verse 17, 2 Chronicles 24, verse 17. It says, now after the death of Jehoiada, remember that's the priest, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. Whoa, that's that's a huge uh, departure. Once Jehoiada's gone, the princes come, they're flattering King Joash, and he says, yeah, what do you guys want? And they're saying, well, we should, we should probably uh, institute a little bit of uh, Asherim worship, idol worship, and we probably shouldn't spend as much attention as we do on the temple. He says, sure, that, that makes sense to me. Off they go. Uh, now, I don't know why the authors and kings leaves that little detail out. It's pretty significant. Uh, Perhaps it's because he wants us to learn how to read between the lines, to recognize there's more going on here than what you immediately judge when you first read it. Uh, It gets worse in 2 Chronicles 24. Uh, Verse 20. Uh, so they've, they've left the temple, they're serving idols, and then it says in verse 20, The Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. So that's Jehoiada the priest. His son, Zechariah, is, is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And remember, that's the sort of a brother to King Joash, uh, having been raised together. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandment of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And it says the people conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Wow, that's a huge departure from the man that we read about here in Kings. Uh, he's not only walking away from the Lord, he's also now stoning to death his brother by adoption, who's rebuking him and the princes for walking away from the Lord. So here the truth really comes out. Not all is right in King Joash's life. Uh, in fact, things were, were terribly wrong. Uh, after his dad died... He was a different man. Uh, and, and he ended up having his own adopted brother killed for trying to speak the word of God to him. Uh, once it comes to his life, his integrity, and the word of God speaks against him, 
That's when you find the man, of, the, the man that he truly is. Will he submit to the Lord? Will his heart be soft? Or will he harden himself and even go out and kill those who speak against him? Well, all of those, those details are left out here in Kings. Uh, the only hint we get is the description of his life in verse 2, uh, the way it should be translated, where he obeyed, or he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, all the days that Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Uh, and, of course, there is the way that he pays off Hazael with the, with the gold of the temple later on. Uh, Now let me say, as we reflect on Joash's life, uh, we should pay close attention to this man's life, because here we have, a lot like us, uh, most of us anyways, here we have a boy who grows up in the temple, who grows up right in the presence of God. Not just within the covenant, but even in the presence of the temple. He had a believing and godly father and mother. We saw that uh, last time. People who were courageous, who truly lived a life of faith. Uh, Whenever it happens uh, within the church that that you have a covenant child that walks away uh, from the Lord, uh, we immediately want to, we have this instinct that wants to turn and blame the parents, uh, that, that something must not be right in the way that child was raised. And that is often the truth. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. There is a general rule uh, that, that stands there. Uh, so if, if the child does depart, one of the first places you would look is, is how did the parents raise this child? But sometimes you won't get straightforward answers on that. Uh, Jehoiada and his wife Jehoshaphat were godly, courageous parents. Uh, we saw that very clearly last time. They set their hope on the promises of God. In fact, they, they risked their lives uh, in order to, to serve the kingdom of God, to save this, this boy from the line of David. Uh, they were people of faith all the way down. And yet, they were not successful in raising their child in the fear of the Lord. Uh, Perhaps they never even realized it, uh, and and it only came out after they had already passed away uh, that that then their child finally, uh, his true colors start start showing. Uh, But here's the thing. Most of us, too, have grown up in the church, uh, a lot like Joash. And so Joash's life and legacy should be something that concerns us as well. Being born and raised in the church is no guarantee of a life and legacy of faith. Now, that is not something we can assume is going to happen automatically. If you're born in the church, you're going to live a life of faith. It doesn't happen automatically. It just doesn't come with the package. And so the first thing we should notice when we look at Joash's heart and life is that he failed to make his father's faith his own faith. That's the fundamental failing here. His father and mother's faith never became his faith. Uh, he evidently grew up in the temple, assuming that because they believed and because they were the high priest and his wife, uh, that he also was obviously a believer. It wasn't true. Uh, he figured he could live a satisfactorily godly life on the strength of his parents' faith. It doesn't work that way. Uh, that never happens. No one gets to ride on the coattails 
of their parents' faith. Uh, That works when you're a little child. You go to church because your parents make you uh, go to church. Uh, You pray because your parents teach you how to pray. You practice the Christian life under your parents' leadership. Uh, and, And you are brought into the grace of the covenant because God's grace to them does extend to you. But at some point, you have the responsibility, every one of us does, to stand on your own feet by the grace of God to grow up, uh, to make your parents' faith your own faith. Uh, You need to be able to say, as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. It's not enough for anyone to say, my dad and mom are Christians, and that's all I need. Uh, it's not all you need. Uh, though though we, we are brought into the grace of God as families, the line before the throne of God is a single file line. Every one of us must stand there on our own. You can't say, I'm with my dad over there. Uh, Romans 14, verse 12. Each of us then will give an account of himself to God. Now, for the parents, uh, there is perhaps a lesson to be learned here. And I'm going to be a little hard on Jehoiada, so bear with me. And if you don't think it's fair, uh, that's fine. We get the impression, both from this chapter and the last one, that Jehoiada the priest uh, was a a man of great courage and faith, but was also a man of a a strong, powerful personality. Uh, He had that aura about him. You know what I'm talking about. That aura about him that when he speaks, everyone sort of stops and and pays attention. Uh, He had a big personality. Uh, he was the one who overthrew the, the reign of, of the wicked Queen Athaliah. Uh, and he organized, as he did that, he organized where all the troops were going to stand. So even the troops are listening to, to the high priest here and taking orders from him. Uh, he told them, how, you know, this is how it's going to go down. And then you're going you're gonna to crown the king Jehoiada, or Je- Je- Jehoash. Uh, here's how that's going to happen. Uh, and it says here, again, in our text, that Joash did right in the eyes of the Lord all the days that his father, that Jehoiada, instructed him. Uh, in other words, uh, Joash did whatever his dad or his adopted dad wanted him to do. Uh, he was under his dad's influence and control, even as a grown man, still under his dad's control. Uh, and, and that's especially amazing when you think about the fact that Second Chronicles actually tells us that Jehoiada lived to be 130 years old. So even in his old age, he still had that strength of personality uh, that he could kind of control things. And by God's grace, he, he used that well. He did do that in the service of God. Uh, now that, that can be a great blessing, and it's, a, it's what enabled him to be a force for good in the overthrow of wicked Queen Athaliah. But there is a danger there as well, uh, because it can so often happen that a man or a woman uh, with a powerful personality can have the effect of overwhelming their children and not giving their children a chance to stand on their own two feet. Uh, You know, there's just so much personality uh, in the room that they just lose, the children lose their grounding. They don't know how to stand on, on their own feet. Uh, And though that works for you as a parent to get what you want, to get your children to comply, to get them to to walk in the ways of the Lord as children, 
it also makes it impossible for them to grow up and stand on their own two feet. Uh, because every time they, they, they have a question, uh, they are immediately overwhelmed, you know, blown over uh, with, with the answer, sort of cajoled into, this is the right way, there is no other way. And, and they almost feel stupid for, for asking questions. Well, that works to get your children to comply. It will not work uh, to get your children to grow up and believe themselves. Uh, we as parents need to be very careful that we're listening uh, to our children, uh, that, that we're hearing them, that we're reading them well, that we're understanding their struggles. Uh, this is particularly true when they're teenagers. Uh, they're very easy, it's very easy to just browbeat them. Uh, they, they lack the cuteness that at least helps you to be tender to them uh, when, when they're little kids. Uh, but we must be careful. Uh, if they as children have doubts or have questions about the faith, uh, we as parents need to be careful to answer wisely, to answer gently, uh, and not rebuke Questions. Questions are not to be rebuked. They are to be answered uh, with, with tenderness and with wisdom. Uh, our goal as Christian parents, in other words, is not just to get our children to obey God, uh, but to love God. It's not just to, to, to follow the standard. It's to love the standard. Uh, and, and that requires a certain tenderness, a certain gentleness that, that knows in the right time how to tone down the personality and listen carefully with a sensitive mind. Well, whether that's true of Jehoiada or not, at the end of the day, what we get is Joash listened to his dad all the days of his dad's life. And when dad was gone, dad's faith was not Joash's faith. And the responsibility for his choices, no matter what weaknesses Jehoiada may have had, the responsibility still falls with Joash. So... This is the first thing that we want to recognize about this boy king, this king who grows up as a boy in the temple, uh, is he failed to make his father's faith his own. Uh, And at the end of the day, he bears the responsibility for that. The second thing that we want to recognize as we think about the chapter as a whole is that King Joash made the mistake of confusing busyness with temple affairs uh, for an actual relationship with the God of the temple. It's confusing busyness with temple affairs for genuine obedience and relationship with God. Uh, You can see that uh, even here in this chapter. Uh, Most of the chapter focuses on the legacy that Joash had as the king who repaired the temple and restored the temple. And even as the king who took the initiative to confront the priests and and tell them uh, that they need to stop treating the the temple's money like it's their salary. Uh, He had a a reputation there. He got the job done. Uh, And it probably shouldn't surprise us that Joash had a special love for the temple. Here's a boy who grew up literally within uh, the temple. Uh, And that aspect of his life was commendable. Uh, He did good things there. He did well on that score. But here's the thing. Busyness with temple or church affairs is no substitute for heartfelt obedience uh, and relationship with the God who stands behind the temple and who stands over the church. 
At the end of the day, uh, especially when we read the account in Chronicles, uh, we find him stoning to death the son of the high priest for speaking the word of God to him. Uh, So we have a king who has a reputation as an advocate for the temple. You want temple stuff done? Here's the guy to go to, but who never understood what the temple was all about. Uh, He had a heart for the building of the temple. He did not have a heart for the God of the temple. His his, His heart was closed. His heart was even dead to the God of the temple. And when he's confronted by the God of the temple, he reacts angrily. He even reacts violently against him. Is there a lesson to be learned there, brothers? Uh, certainly there is. It, is. it is entirely possible to love the affairs of the church of God without knowing, without loving, and without obeying the God who stands uh, behind the church. Uh, there, are, there are many peripheral uh, aspects of church life uh, that we might love. Uh, you know, consistory, council, uh, budgets, operations, property management, uh, synods, you know, all the, the lovely theological debates, uh, reading Clarion, talking about what's in there, Canadian Reform politics and gossip, uh, all that good stuff, uh, church picnics, uh, congregational life to some extent. It's entirely possible to love all of these peripheral activities without having a meaningful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, where he teaches us, leads us, corrects us, admonishes us, communes with us, and ultimately rules us. It's entirely possible for that not to be there. And that is a particular danger uh, for those of us who, like Joash, are born and raised within the confines of the church. Because it's a very difficult heart condition to be able to spot. It's very hard to see it because we we love all of these uh, church things and we conclude wrongly that we must therefore also love the God of the church. It's very deceptive. Uh, Now, there there certainly are some barometers uh, of that reality where it exists. Uh, It shows up as it did in in Joash's life in particular areas. Uh, It tends to show up in our personal, private, devotional life, whether that is there, whether that is uh, alive and thriving. Uh, It tends to show up in our family devotional life. Uh, Do we do devotions as a family where there's an expressed love and an expressed culture of uh, a gospel culture in our family. Uh, it shows up in, in the fact of whether or not we confess our sins to our wife, to our, to our children, or as a wife to our husband. Uh, it, it tends to show up in whether or not we're sharing our faith and our struggles with fellow Christians. Are we walking with other Christians uh, openly, with honesty, with integrity? Uh, and as we see with Joash, the place where it will always ultimately show up is Is there repentance and obedience when we're confronted with the word of God? Uh, As God inevitably does in the course of our life. We will go astray in little areas, or sometimes in big areas. When we're confronted by God, will we repent? Will we conform? Will we submit? That's where that true heart relationship with God will ultimately show up. Uh, That's where the rubber hits the road. 
Well, what we see in Joash, then, is a king who built up his reputation as a man who was on every church committee, who was devoted to the temple, but who failed to come to know and be ruled by the God of the temple. Uh, May we, brothers and sisters, not assume that just because we're busy with church affairs uh, that we are living in relationship with God. Uh, May it be that our faith is an active faith that is rooted in a heart that is ruled by and changed by the love of God. And that leads us uh, very briefly to the the last thing that we want to see here in Joash's heart and life. Uh, if, If someone is not ruled by the love of God, that means they are ruled by something else. They're they're always ruled by something else. All of us are ruled by something. We are worshipers uh, by by virtue of the fact that we are human beings. We will worship and live for something. Uh, we, We all do. So what ruled King Joash if it was not the love of God? Well, as we read, especially the account in in Chronicles, it it seems apparent that Joash was ruled by what uh, Christian counselors will call the fear of man. Now, the fear of man, he he was a people pleaser. He wanted to please what other, uh, yeah, he wanted to please people. Uh, He was ruled by their opinion of him. Uh, you can see this on several instances. Uh, first, again, there's, there's verse 2. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days that his father instructed him. Uh, what ruled him during those days? The fear of man. The, the desire to please his father. Uh, to, 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 to make his father happy and proud. You see it again in verse 3. Uh, it, it, says, it, it says in verse 3, Only the high places were not removed. Well, what's that all about? Well, the high places were, were something that was forbidden by God. It was the ability that, that there were places that people set up for each individual to worship God in his own place, on his own terms, in his own way. And, and they were extremely popular in Israel and in Judah. Uh, this is the one consistent thing you read about almost with every single king uh, in, in First and Second Kings is they, those that did what was right in the sight of the Lord did so almost perfectly or almost uh, well in every area except for the high places. Uh, They couldn't remove them, or I should say they wouldn't remove them because they were popular. Uh, They were the places for personal, private religion, and the people loved them. And so Joash left them exactly the way they were. And then his father passed away, and, and then you read the account in Chronicles where uh, the, the very next verse, so in Chronicles it, it says his father passed away, and then the very next verse it says, Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. And then the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served Asherim and idols. That feels good, doesn't it? You've got the princes of the people coming to you, saying, you're such a great king, Joash. They're they're paying homage to him. Uh, They're saying all these nice things to him. And the very next thing it says is he went and did what they wanted him to do. Joash here is ruled by the fear of man. When his dad's around, he goes one direction. Uh, When his dad's gone and the princes show up, 
goes off into a different direction. Uh, whatever people want, that's what I will be. Uh, he, he's sort of you know, putting his finger up into the winds and feeling the winds of popular opinion and, and saying, that's the way that I'm now going to go. Are, are we, is popular opinion that we're going to go worship God? Then I'm the strongest advocate you'll ever find for, for the temple. Uh, oh, is, is, is the winds of change now moving to Asherim worship? Well, sure. Let's leave this project on the house of the Lord alone and let's go build some idols to, to, Ash, to the Asherim. Uh, he's ruled by the fear of man. Did you know that the number one command in the Bible, the number one command uh, that's repeated more than any other is do not fear. Do not fear. And it's almost always referring to the fear of man. And the corollary to that command is fear God. Esteem Him most highly. Reverence Him. Follow Him. We will, all of us, either be ruled by the fear of man, uh, which, which makes us soft and cowardly, or we will be ruled by the fear of God, which makes us strong and courageous. Uh, you consider the faith that's expressed in, in, verse, in, in Psalm 118. We sang this earlier, where the psalmist says, The Lord is on my side, therefore I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's a heart that's ruled by the fear of God. Uh, Psalm 27 as well, uh, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, we will, all of us, either fear God and be courageous and strong, or we will fear man and be cowards. Uh, that's, that's the heart of Joash's problem. It is cowardice that arises from the fear of man. Uh, and that's, what, that's where we also then get the events that we find in the final verses of our chapter here in, in 2 Kings, verses 17 and 18. Hazael comes... Uh, he's the king of Syria, right to the north of, of uh, Israel. Uh, and he conquers Gath, that's a Philistine city, uh, right on the border with Judah. And then he turns and he sets his eyes on Judah. And, and here's where we're going to see what rules King Joash. You've got a human power against your border heading your way. What now will rule you? Uh, now... Uh, we know from Chronicles that even that attack from Hazel was already at God's response to them having turned away from him. But Kings doesn't tell us that. Uh, so here we're just supposed to pay attention to Joash's response. What will he do? Well, what he does is he calculates the powers of man. He looks at the size of that army. He looks at the uh, people that, that Hazel had already conquered. And he decides... We need to plunder the temple of God in order to pay off this man, Hazael. Now, I don't want to stretch the meaning of this text uh, beyond uh, what it deserves, uh, but it's fair to say that sort of thing still happens, doesn't it? Uh, we plunder the riches of the gospel, we plunder the riches of God's word, and give them away in order to win the approval of man. Uh, we calculate. Uh, for example, uh, where are the majority of scientists on, on Darwinian evolution? 
Oh, we can plunder the word of God. We can reinterpret things. We can throw them away. We don't need this little verse and that verse and this doctrine and that one. Uh, We can accommodate. Uh, Where are the educated people in our culture uh, when it comes to, let's say, the differences between men and women? What's the popular opinion on that? Uh, We can accommodate. Uh, we can, there's only a few verses. We can, we can work them around. Uh, we can plunder this. Uh, what's the prevailing view in our culture about homosexuality? Well, never mind the, those verses in the Word of God. We can sell them off. We can make this work. Uh, we, we plunder the Word of God, the riches of God, to win the approval of the world. And that's a, that's a, that's a problem that goes both directions. I mentioned uh, you know, pressures from, from the liberal side of the spectrum, but it's just as true on the other side uh, as well, uh, where, where we give up gospel truths, gospel convictions in order to win the approval of of men. Uh, In Matthew 7, Jesus commands us uh, not to cast our pearls before swine. I think this is one of the most misunderstood verses. A lot of people uh, take that verse to mean you shouldn't evangelize to people who don't want to hear it, uh, to people who don't care. I don't believe that's the point of what Jesus was saying. This is the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about. Taking the treasures of God's word, watering them down uh, in order to win the approval of man. Uh, Casting your pearls, saying, here, welcome to the Christian club. I know you don't really belong here, but come on in. Uh, Jesus says, don't do that. Uh, Don't do that out of a desire for their approval when you don't have God's approval to do so. Uh, At the end of the day, they will simply trample those riches and then they'll still come for you at the end of the day uh, when they're done. And that's what ultimately happens with Joash as well. He sold the treasures of the temple in order to buy peace with Hazael. And then, uh, uh, and, and, and actually according to, to Chronicles, Chronicles gives us a bit more detail. So after he pays Hazael off, it's not even a year later that Hazael comes back uh, and, and starts asking for more. And then there's nothing left. He's already sold everything there was. Uh, He's fed the beast. He's given Hazael uh, the affirmation that when you come to our border, we give you what you want. Well, Hazael is going to be back next year. You should have seen that coming. Uh, They trample the riches of the gospel and still come for you. Uh, And in Chronicles, uh, we we actually learn that the assassination at the end of Joash's life, he was assassinated, uh, as we read in Kings, it it actually happened when he was in bed recovering from mortal wounds that had been inflicted on him by Hazael and his army. So Hazael came back. Joash had nothing left. Hazael attacked them. He's in bed recovering from his wounds, and it's then that he's assassinated. So it is astounding, brothers and sisters, that after 130 years of, of Jehoiada's life, his legacy that we saw a couple of weeks ago of, of faith and courage, uh, that we get Joash's legacy of cowardice and failure. Uh, Joash may well have been assassinated, as you read between the lines. He may have been assassinated precisely because the people of Judah were sick and tired of his cowardice. Uh, uh, When you read the account in Chronicles, you actually learn that the army of Hazael was, was an army of very few men. Uh, Chronicles even explicitly points that out. Hazael didn't even have that big of an army. Uh, Well, eventually, people get sick of following a coward. They get sick of it. Uh, and, and the fear of man is what makes us into cowards. And that's the legacy 
that Joash leaves. Uh, This is why uh, reading this story, thinking about what's really going on here, uh, truly makes me tremble. Uh, we, We are all of us so prone to this, so prone to the fear of man, to be ruled by it. You think even of the Apostle Peter. Uh, as, as he dealt with the circumcision party, the extremist uh, Jews. And, and Peter, after seeing Christ resurrected, capitulated to the fear of man. Uh, when our heart is ruled by the opinions of others and a desire to please uh, others, we can become massive disappointments in the kingdom of God. And you see this in the church as well. The desire to please uh, and be approved of by others will absolutely ruin our legacy before God. And it's cowardice. Uh, Revelation 21, when it talks about the lake of fire at the end of of judgment, uh, where the enemies of God are thrown, it mentions among their their, uh, uh, vices, it mentions cowardice. It says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable for murders, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's not a morally neutral thing to be a coward. Uh, It is a heart orientation that makes us into cowards. Uh, A heart that is oriented to the opinions of men, the fear of men, and not ruled by the fear of God. And that's something we're called to put to death. And that's where I want to now just very briefly draw the line to Christ. Because that is what we ultimately want to see coming out of this chapter. In contrast with the priests, the priests who are too busy with their personal lives, their, their salaries, uh, in order to do the work of God, to rebuild the temple of God, in contrast with them, and in contrast with Joash, who is too consumed by the fear of man to be useful in the kingdom of God, we now want to direct our attention to Christ, to the Son of God, who by God's grace was not ruled by the fear of man, but submitted his life wholly to God. Uh, if, if the boy king Joash, someone who's raised in the temple, instructed by the priest, could turn out to be such a failure, uh, we certainly should tremble for ourselves and we should be thankful and cry out to God for the help of Jesus Christ, the one who's not a coward, the one who was ruled by the fear of God. Uh, scripture does tell us, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And how do you take heed? I would suggest the first thing is run to Christ, the one who leads us in the fear of God. Uh, he is a king who is worthy to follow and able to lead you in the paths of obedience and teach you the courage that's rooted in the fear of God. Uh, he, is, he is the one who makes it possible, as we hold on to him, for us to defy the fear of man. We can say, I will not fear what can man do to me because I have Christ, my brother, my father, my king, at my side. Therefore, I shall not be afraid. And that's where then this chapter leads us. At the end of the day, we need to ask who or what rules our hearts. We must not assume that our external conformity Uh, equals a heart that is ruled by Christ. We are to run to Him. We are to find our hope in Him. We are ultimately to be ruled and dominated by Him. And as if, if we do that, then we can leave a legacy that is worth leaving. Uh, so say it. 
by God's grace given to me in Christ. The Lord is my light. He is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Amen. Uh, Let's sing in response from Psalm uh, Psalm 27, stanzas 1, 2, and 6.